At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. The sublime art of music, whether playing it, listening to it, or composing it, it all reflects culture, and as many would say, it's among the greatest expressions of human experience and emotion. That certainly is nothing unique to the Gilded Age. The power of music has existed for centuries, and of course still does today. The music composed, played, and enjoyed during America's Gilded Age communicated a lot about culture. It reflected a connection to centuries-old European models and sensibilities. It also reflected a nation that had just gone through a soul-wrenching civil war and wanted to rebuild. But perhaps, most of all, so much of the music of the Gilded Age reflected a new drive, a new spirit, a new nation, and a new identity. As we will see in this show today, the wide range of music that Gilded Age audiences knew, played, hummed, or, for some anyway, tapped their silk-stockinged feet to, whether in a concert hall, opera house, drawing room, or saloon, was far more diverse than many realize. Yes, we had classic symphonies, operas, and instrumental music coming from Europe, or based on European tradition. But we also had the beginnings of what could be called truly American music, both classical and popular, which included the work of the first American homegrown composers, both male and female. And we had the birth of revolutionary music styles that included a blending of cultural traditions that produced ragtime and, as the 20th century grew, jazz. Today, the Gilded Gentleman welcomes Dr. Christopher Brellux, a professional musician and historian who will take us on a tour of the music and musicians that captured the spirit of America in the Gilded Age. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every other week we delve into worlds light and dark of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. Crowds descended from carriages and jostled each other as they tried to enter the heavy wooden doors of the great rose-colored palace, leaving behind a still dusty and unpaved 57th Street in New York City. 
It was the evening of May 5th, 1891, and New York was opening its newest symbol of culture, a new music hall built of reddish-brown brick and warm terracotta that glowed when catching the light of an evening sunset. New York as a city was still expanding north, and this new hall on the corner of 57th Street, not far from Central Park, was truly at the top of this rapidly expanding city. Central Park was relatively new, and the Gilded Age elite were rushing to build new and grander mansions up Fifth Avenue along the park's east side. Financed by the great steel magnate Andrew Carnegie, this new concert hall, called at the time simply the Music Hall, had been Carnegie's vision for a hall devoted to and designed specifically for the enjoyment of music. Chosen by Carnegie himself, the young 34-year-old architect who designed the hall, William Tuthill, was also a musician. In fact, he was a cellist, and his musical knowledge and sensibility went into creating a hall whose auditorium shape resembled the curves and lines of a cello, thereby giving the hall a unique and pristine acoustic. The audience streaming into Carnegie's hall that warm May night, once seated on the plush red seats, heard a concert that included the patriotic rendition of America by the New York Symphony Society, a precursor of the New York Philharmonic, and selections by Beethoven, and a New York premiere by the French composer Hector Berlioz, sung by the Oratorio Society. The star of the program was brought from Europe at great expense to conduct a work he composed for the coronation of Tsar Alexander III. As the audience watched silently, the 51-year-old Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky took the stage and raised his baton. Carnegie's Music Hall presented audiences with not just one concert to inaugurate this great hall, but following this first opening night on May 5th, four additional evenings of music followed. In some ways, you could point to this moment, the grand opening of what was to become known universally as Carnegie Hall, You could think of it as a fanfare to a world of music that was coalescing into something that was becoming distinctly American and combined the very old with the very new and that would change audiences forever. My guest today takes us deeply into that world of music in late 19th century and early 20th century America and shares some insight on it all. A musical world that included the sublime and the spiritual and went from symphonies to saxophones. Dr. Christopher Brellix is an internationally recognized lecturer, performer, music historian, and educator. He is a preeminent scholar on the music of the Gilded Age, and he also portrayed composer-conductor John Knowles Payne in Julian Fellow's HBO series, The Gilded Age, Season 1, Episode 4. He further assisted the production team with the historic accuracy of that scene, and I can't wait to talk to him about all of that. As a saxophonist and conductor, Dr. Brellix has performed extensively nationally and internationally from New York City to Newport, from Paris to Zagreb, Croatia. He is currently the Dean of the School of Music at SUNY Schenectady and an adjunct artist in music at Vassar College. Gosh, Chris, 
I have so been looking forward to our show for months, and we've been chatting for months. I'm so glad you're finally here across the table for me. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's great after having listened to your podcast since it came out. Uh, it's delightful to be a part of it. I'm so honored that you're here, and we have a lot to talk about. So let's really jump in, because there really are so many different aspects to music in the Gilded Age. So, Chris, in my introduction, I described the opening of Carnegie Hall in May of 1891, really at the height of the Gilded Age. And when we take a look at that, at the music that was chosen, the conductors that performed, and maybe even really the hall itself— as a musician and a historian from your perspective, what does all of that tell us about the world of music in New York's Gilded Age? So I'm going to touch upon three of those aspects that you mentioned, Carl, starting with the architecture. To have a hall in New York City, which has had concert halls and opera houses in its past, but to have one built with such a high level of musical integrity and acoustic craftsmanship was very special. And it allowed New York to become even more important and central towards offering music, both for New York composers and United States-based composers, as well as those coming internationally. So as a historian, my job is to be just a little bit skeptical. So when people say greatest acoustics, you know, blah, 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 I luckily had an opportunity to test that for myself. So a number of years ago, I had the opportunity to play the saxophone solo for Mazorsky's Pictures at Exhibition, the Ravel's arrangement of that. And I learned that the acoustics were either your best friend or your worst enemy, depending on whether you played very well or any slight imperfection. And what I mean by that is it projects and reinforces whatever you do. So there's no hiding. If you play with perfection, everyone will hear it. If there's any slight gurgle, warble, misstep, everyone will hear it. Fortunately, the audience applauded, so I think I did okay. So the architecture is very important, the importance of having such a high-level concert hall. The other aspect is the repertoire, the music that was chosen. And so you have a who's who of established classical composers, people like George Friedrich Hendel, Mozart, Beethoven, Mendelssohn, Berlioz. But not only did we have these well-established classical composers, all from Europe, we also have living composers being programmed on this opening concert in this opening week. We have Richard Wagner, Jules Massenet, and Tchaikovsky. Now, What's interesting about Tchaikovsky is not only was his music represented, he was one of the conductors for that opening week. And when you ask, what does this opening of Carnegie Hall tell us? Part of it is illustrated by Tchaikovsky in his role in that opening week. He was paid what normally would be made for an entire year of work for that just one week. So the Gilded Age had a level of prosperity that allowed some of the top living composers throughout the world to be enticed to come on over. Now, there was another conductor on that program. His name was Walter Damrosch. Now, Walter Damrosch was the son of Leopold Damrosch, who was a German immigrant. So they came to the United States in the 1870s. And both of them had pieces on the program as well. Neither Leopold or Walter Damrosch we don't usually hear their compositions anymore, but their importance as conductors and bringing the musical life 
alive in New York City and the Gilded Age cannot be underestimated. So they were very important in terms of the development of music during this time period. And we'll certainly get to them when we get to the Metropolitan Opera, right? Because we will. Because they were certainly we important there. So right in the middle of the 19th century, we had, of course, the Civil War and all the effects, of course, of the Industrial Revolution from which so many Gilded Age fortunes came and, and were made. So can you talk a little bit about, because I think this is really interesting, about the effect of this increased industrialization on the world of music. Absolutely. And and let's set the stage a little bit about what the Industrial Revolution really was. So, Carl, um, when's the last time you did laundry? Actually, two nights ago. And did you do it by hand or did you use a machine? Oh, it was a machine. Interesting. And next time you book a flight over to visit London, are are you going to use a handmade transportation vehicle or are you going to go with something... Machine made. No, I, machine made, I think, is the best way to do it, For right? safety purposes, <laughs> I would imagine. So the Industrial Revolution is really that transition from Civil War and pre-Civil War, from things being predominantly handmade to machine made. And in some circumstances, we, we now relish and long for those good old days of handmade items. But in many cases, like laundry and airplane travel, we enjoy the effects of the Industrial Revolution. And the same can be said for music. So think about the transportation industry. So you have our, we just talked about Carnegie Hall. That was founded by Andrew Carnegie. He came to the United States as a kid His parents were Scottish. His father was a weaver, humble means, and became the leader for steel. So his fortune funded Carnegie Hall. And that steel industry revolutionized transportation. How does that affect music? Well, we've had tours of music. People like Jenny Lind with P.T. Barnum, Adelina Patti. They did tours, but those were very expensive tours. And as the Industrial Revolution continues and steel and manufacturing gets better, it allows for more and more touring groups and touring companies to take music all over the United States, not just to the major cities, but to some of the more rural, smaller cities as well. So that Industrial Revolution allows for that dissemination of music in a way that wasn't possible pre-Civil War. Let's also think about, uh, we mentioned uh, the Damroche. I talked about the Damroche family just briefly. They were immigrants. This Industrial Revolution required people to do the work. So the United States had a very open immigration policy at the time. The German immigrants loved music. They were very proud of that music. And so that there was a certain demand for music and a, a kind of almost a an exchange program between the United States and Germany. You have German immigrants coming to New York City, and you have American composers going to Germany to study and learn the craft of music, something that became more and more possible at this time period. The population growth meant that there was a larger demand for music, specifically in the area of printing music. And so the printing of sheet music was one of the final culminations of the the big impact that that Industrial Revolution had on music during the Gilded Age. So really, we're talking about the dissemination of music, either actual music and groups performing it or the printed music itself. I think that's fascinating. Yeah, that was such an important factor that in a day where you have access to music in your pocket of almost everything that's been created throughout human history, to remember that the thirst for music was just as strong, but the way you were able to get it was very different. 
Which leads into my next question. So we're still really in the era here, well before phonographs, and and perhaps you had a piano at home, and maybe there was someone there to play it, or, or even another instrument, not only a piano. Certainly for great classical music, you had to go out of the home, right? So can you give us an overview of what some options were that one had to actually be exposed to music? Certainly there were concert halls, Carnegie Hall, but predating Carnegie Hall, there was other major venues, places like if we just go and look at New York City, places like Niblos Garden, which was established all the way back in the 1820s, but was active throughout the Gilded Age. And Opera houses were very, very common. They were starting to be built. So places like the Academy of Music was built in 1854. Some of these houses were had multifunction purposes. So you might have an opera. You might then have an orchestra play. You might have a speaker. You might have a play. But there were these were the kind of places you could hear that, along with some unusual places you might not think of, like the Park Avenue Armory, which was originally headquarters for the, the local militia. But the acoustics were fantastic, so of course they took advantage of that and started programming concerts. So not only did you have what you might expect, concert halls, but you can't forget the importance of the church. And the church was, has, for centuries, for thousands of years, has been an important place for people to go and hear music. And for New York City, old New York money, that would have been Trinity Church. And by the time you get into the Gilded Age, you have the completion of St. Patrick's Cathedral. And so that was a place where you would hear not only religious music, but you would hear some of this classical music, whether it's a choral, a big choral oratorio, or perhaps the organist playing excerpts from a symphony that you might have heard at Niblos Garden a couple couple weeks ago. And then lastly, outdoors. The number of parades, outdoor concerts, fairs, you would have heard some of this classical music being performed in those settings as well. And one of the things that I think is fascinating, it relates to what you brought up right at the beginning of the show, was the notion of acoustic. Among all these different venues, and some of them were in fact really lecture halls, you had a pretty wide variety of acoustics to choose from, which of course, right, made Carnegie such a revolution because that hall was made for music. Am I right about that? You're absolutely right. I mean, there was there's there was many that were made for music, but when you specialize and you cuz cuz music has so many different I mean, there's so many different styles. If you're producing an opera, there are different acoustic needs than a symphony orchestra. And so Carnegie Hall said, "We're going to specialize and we're just going to try to do one thing really well as opposed to have this more multi-purpose acoustic space that can accommodate lectures." opera orchestras. Now, one of the options that you mentioned is one of my very favorites, and that's the Academy of Music, which before the Metropolitan Opera, which we'll get to, but before the Metropolitan Opera was built, that was really New York's premier opera house. And we see the Academy of Music in season one of HBO's The Gilded Age. There's a very pivotal scene that's set at the Academy of Music. But what I think is so interesting about that scene is it was conducted, uh, the orchestra on stage was conducted by a composer, Gilded Age composer named John Knowles Payne, who was actually portrayed by you. You <laughs> played that role in that scene and in that moment. So 
Oh, I have a number of questions here. So first of all, let's talk about, can you share for listeners just who John Knowles Payne was? Because that may not be a name that's familiar to people today. It's interesting when you're studying history to see who's, quote unquote, withstood the test of time, names we remember. So that opening week at Carnegie Hall, Berlioz, Mozart, Tchaikovsky, they've withstood the test of time. They're still here. Uh, We still know about them. John Knowles Payne is someone who, by and large, his name has not withstood the test of time. And that begs the question, why? Was he maybe not quite as good? Was there some other reason? So when I was started looking into him, to be honest, I really had heard of his name before, but I wasn't familiar with his music when I got involved with the HP book production. So John Knowles Payne was, interestingly enough, the first American-born composer who became internationally known for his large-scale orchestral music. So there'd been some other composers. Again, United States, a melting pot, people like Leopold Damrosch coming from Germany to the United States. But to have someone born here who was then going out. And John Knowles Payne is a perfect example of someone who did go to Germany to study music. He was also an organist. He performed all over Europe for three years. To a certain extent, that develops a certain level of respect and the kind of cachet you need to come back to the United States and establish a career. So he did come back. He was a a well-known composer coming out of the Boston, New England area. And he was the first music professor to be hired by Harvard. And his courses on music appreciation and music theory set the model that was used for higher education in the United States to today. So although we might not know his name as a composer as much as maybe we should, we do know his the principles he put into place and the education he got from Germany that he then brought back to the United States and was valuable. He was also a conductor. He was the first for the Boston Symphony Orchestra in their first season in 1881. He was their first guest conductor. So he was a very important on, on this kind of multi-levels. I wasn't familiar with his name either, so I did a little bit of preliminary research, and I was so excited to find out that he was born in Maine, just like me. So a fellow Maine boy. I love that. Now, when you and I were chatting, you shared some, I thought, really fascinating details about what it was actually like to play him, because one of the great things about the HBO series, The Gilded Age, is its sense of authenticity. And you had shared with me that the baton, the conductor's baton that you were given was not like one we'd find today. Could you share a little bit about what that experience was like in terms of authenticity and how close you got to the 19th century when you were playing that part? So it was kind of hilarious. I get on on set and the prop master who I'd been working with for getting ready for everything comes up with three conductor batons. He's like, these are all historic 19th century batons. And so they're, they're longer than the conducting baton. The, they're usually made out of a dark wood with silver, like a silver tip, a little silver banding in the middle, and then the pommel is also silver, but it's like engraved. It's beautiful. Of course, I picked the, the most fancy one I could see because, you know, I want to be seen on, on camera. And it was really it was really neat to feel the weight. It was a heavier baton. And just today you have these more kind of like cream-colored batons are typical. But there they went the opposite. They had the black baton with the silver banding and things like that. But I was so impressed with the attention to detail that this production 
was committed to. So it, it, it started with me just a- answering a call for extras for an orchestra. And when they found out that I also conducted an actual orchestra and that my research for many, many years has been this time period, they asked me if I could help out further. So we went into minute detail, like what the instruments needed to look like. So with the musicians in the orchestra, did they have an instrument they could modify? The silk wrappings at the end of the string with different colors, that wasn't that wasn't there. Using a shoulder rest for that violin, that wasn't common in 1882, which is when this is set. So we take that out. The timpani, renting the right kind of timpani with a calfskin head, because listening to the music I know they were going to use, there was a big timpani solo. Speaking of which, the director was fantastic. After she got all of the shots she needed for that scene, she asked me, I need to some close-ups of the instruments. What instruments should I use? Where should I put those cameras? So between the prop master, who was magnificent in helping select, rent all the equipment we needed, to the director really taking the care to focus in on the instruments, some people might say, Dr. Brolux, you might recognize this, maybe a handful of other musicians, but your average person isn't going to write. Does it really even matter? And my answer is yes, because if you've experienced a movie or a television show where it just transports you to another world, that happens because all of its elements are working together and there's a an accuracy and authenticity that allows you to suspend belief and immerse yourself in the narrative. And I think that level of commitment to the accuracy was very much apparent during this the series of the Gilded Age. Oh, uh, absolutely. I agree, agree. Absolutely. And with that, Chris and I are going to take a short break, but we'll come back to continue our musical story. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Save big money on everything for your spring projects at Menards. We have all of your garden and landscaping essentials. Master Garden Premium Garden Soil contains a slow-release fertilizer that feeds gardens for up to nine months. It produces better results and is ready to use for all your gardening needs. Save big on Menards' great selection of garden and landscaping products. Compare brands in-store or online at Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and I'm with Dr. Christopher Brellix, and we are looking at the world of music in the Gilded Age. Now, certainly, 
a great moment in the music scene during the Gilded Age um, was the opening of the Metropolitan Opera in 1883. We often talk about the fact that so much of that was really a social maneuver and not really a moment for true music lovers, although there were some. There really, there really were. But Chris, can you talk about what audiences heard in that first season of the Met? Because I think that's fascinating and and gives us some insight. And what was that repertoire like in that inaugural season? What was the opening all about? So we had had in the United States the Academy of Music had been in a very important was the preeminent opera house, and so a strong history of Italian opera. Italy was known as the country most well-known, but there was French opera, and there's always been rivalries between the countries throughout history. What's better, French opera or Italian opera? And you have these kind of back and forth and critics argue, and then German opera starts to make a, a play for being a contender, and the Italians start saying, well, German as a language isn't even fit for being sung, and you have that kind of drama going on. But for the opening of the Met, they embraced the traditional Italian opera. And so you have wonderful operas by Giuseppe Verdi, Rigoletto, La Traviata, Il Trovatore, operas that are still performed at the Met today, along with some of the classics of Bellini and Donizetti and Mozart, all beautiful Italian operas. But what's interesting is you have Gounod's Faust, you have Bizet's Carmen and Wagner's Lohengrin, all of which are not in Italian, but they are translated and they were performed in Italian during this opening season. And it it just reminds me of that Edith Wharton quote at the beginning of The Age of Innocence where she says, and I'm going to quote, an unalterable an unquestioned law of the musical world required that the German text of French operas sung by Swedish artists should be translated into Italian for the clearer understanding of English-speaking audiences. Isn't that brilliant? It's, it's so witty. But what is it's, she saying there? She's saying that there might be a touch of pretentiousness involved. <laughs> and so just like... Oh, and she was right. And well... <laughs> There's, there's always the good, the bad, and the ugly in any time period we go to. There's many wonderful – I mean, to have such an, a glorious opera hall open is wonderful, but you're not going to escape some of – like you mentioned, some of the more silly things where people were there just to be seen, to show – to pretend that they were cultured, even if they weren't cultured, if they, even to feign appreciation and understanding of the arts when they actually really did not. Uh, so that did happen for certain, but – there was enough people that were committed to that who believed that the quality of music would have an uplifting effect on the people of New York, and there was a demand for that. And that, I think, is also very important. So you have those varied aspects. It's just so amusing to me to see that I believe there were 19 different operas that were performed that first season. And despite the fact you had a significant number that actually were written in Italian, and you had the German and the French, Everything was sung in Italian because that was the style of the period. That's not unprecedented. So when George Friedrich Handel went to London, at the time, everyone in London wanted to hear Italian opera. It was the thing. And then a few years later, they were like, we're done with that thing. And he's like, okay, English oratorios it is. So this is not unheard of. Well, Handel was very flexible, don't we think? <laughs> he was an, an amazing entrepreneur and an amazing 
musician. Here's what's really interesting about the first season at the Met. The house nearly went bankrupt. Italian singers were very expensive. You had new sets. You had new costumes. You had all of this going around. And so the impresario was relieved of his duties. And the season entirely changed for the second season and for multiple seasons after that into German seasons. And that relates to something you said earlier. Can you talk about why everything changed to German, why that was? And essentially, it seems the German community nearly saved the Met. What happened? Yes, absolutely. The the German immigrant population in New York City and at that time was, was quite high. So the the people who kind of funded and, and built the the Metropolitan Opera. And we should take a, a second to talk just to briefly about who those people were. Those were people like Jay Gould, Cornelius Vanderbilt, James Pierpont Morgan. So all of these Gilded Age fortunes and entrepreneurs and innovators, their money goes to that. Now, why did they make their own opera house? Well, if you were listening carefully to season one of the HBO's The Gilded Age, you know why. You know that they couldn't get box seats at the Academy of Music. They were shut out. They were new money. They weren't really welcome into the social class at that time. Uh, and so they built, and what I love about that story and this story is that they didn't complain about it. They didn't drag their feet. They didn't, they just built their own opera house. They're like, you're not going to let us in? Well, we're going to build our own opera house. And so they were businessmen. I'm sure they weren't particularly pleased with the financial loss they took during that first season. So they said, let's make a change. We're going to shift. We're going to try to capitalize on the German population that's here. We're going to get Leopold Damrosch, who was very well respected, not only as a violinist performing in orchestras, in the top orchestras, but as a composer and a conductor. And he made that shift. He went back to Germany. He he kind of recruited the top German talent he could find so that then in the second season, you move towards having not just one Wagner opera, but three Wagner operas. And let's throw in Beethoven's Fidelio and Weber's Der Freischutz. So all German operas there. But, you know, Leopold's not going to ignore the Italian opera. He's going to have Verdi's Rigoletto again, but this time in German. And he's going to have Don Giovanni again but in German. So it's really interesting to see that shift. One was the costs of the Italian sopranos. Christina, and in Swedish sopranos, like Christina Nielsen, who was very popular, she could command a very high salary. And singers get sick. You need to refund tickets, especially if they're very famous. So the shift to figuring out a way to constrain the costs and have very, very high quality. The the quality of the secondary parts of the orchestra, a lot of critics thought that Leopold Damrosch did a lot to make the consistency of the production a higher at a higher level than what was achieved in the first season. Now, when I was researching the show several months back on Gilded Age operatic superstar Lillian Nordica, I was actually really surprised to find out that she actually got her start touring with essentially a brass band. This was the famous Gilmore's band with whom she toured Europe. That was her entree into Europe, certainly as well as all over the United States. And she sang both classical repertoire and also some more popular music. 
This is really interesting to me, Chris. Can you talk about the role of these brass bands and what their influence was at this particular point and how they affected the music scene? So one thing that is maybe a little bit lost or obscured with history is this idea of popular, more popular music and high art, quote unquote, classical music. And sometimes today you have classical musicians or conservatories of music that look down their nose at popular music and kind of it's nice and all let the locals have their their thing but the real art is classical that was less so at this time and even pre-civil war and, and going into the certainly the beginning of the gilded age classical music and popular music lived side by side and it wasn't uncommon that you would have a high art artist Lillian Nordica Adelina Patti Jenny Lind sing the most exquisite classical aria alongside with something that was more of a popular song. So this antithesis that's kind of became full-fledged in the 20th century of high art versus low art wasn't as present during this time period. So that part is a little less surprising to me. The importance of bands can't be underestimated, especially when you think about the Civil War. So Patrick Gilmore got started. He served in the Union Army during the Civil War, and he was put in charge of organizing the bands. And what's particularly interesting is the development of an American sensibility and style when it comes to music in a certain place, from a certain perspective, starts during the Civil War, where you have all these people from all different regions throughout the United States coming together in a band and those different regional musics, Irish, German, et cetera, et cetera, start being combined and start being played within these bands. So these brass bands that get started during the Civil War, once it's over, there's still, there's still a demand for music. And it's been kind of that melting pot has really been put in fast forward for the development of music. So you have... Patrick Gilmore putting on these massive events like the National Peace Jubilee that was done in 1869 and then the World's Peace Jubilee done a few years later. And these were like Madison Square Garden's got nothing. And actually, Patrick Gilmore had a place called Gilmore's Garden that became Madison Square Garden. So he knew about like Coliseum events. And so he would have these giant bands, giant orchestras, and he would invite celebrities from Europe to come over. One of those people he brought over, Johann Strauss II. Now, if you're dancing a waltz in a ballroom, whether that be in New York City or Vienna, chances are at some point in during that night, or perhaps even the entire night, you're dancing to the music of Johann Strauss. He was called the Waltz King. And so to bring him over to the United States was a big deal. People were lined up to get his autograph, to get a lock of his hair, which was a common thing of that time. So Patrick Gilmore was so important to the development of music during the Gilded Age. And he took the bands and he had them playing more popular music alongside some of the a, a movement from a symphony. Again, a way of bringing music to the people that otherwise would not have access to that music through outdoor events, through some of these amazing jubilee events that he put on. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about this notion of what actual music people were hearing at the time. Now, there is this perception 
during the Gilded Age, or certainly a lot of the 19th century, that mostly people heard music from Europe, heard European composers. And we've talked a little bit about that. But I'm really curious, and you've talked a little bit about this, is what was happening with homegrown composers? There are certainly, we, we talked about John Knowles Payne, but there are some that we've forgotten. But what were some of these influences that were starting to percolate right here? It's amazing you asked that question, Carl, because even today, there's a sense that everything during the late 19th century America was derivative. And I'm not just talking about, I'm talking about well-established composers, especially European composers, think, oh, America was just copying European music. And now, that's not completely untrue, but that doesn't tell the whole story. And I think to understand this question, we have to look at this idea, this pendulum of cosmopolitan versus nationalism that has been around in music for a long time. So there's this kind of ebb and flow through history of what composers, what their sensibility is. Do we want to be cosmopolitan? Meaning, do we want to take the best of every country, blend it together, and have something that's the best? So in opera, we if you go all the way back to names like Christoph Willibald Gluck, who most people might not know, but without Gluck, there would be no Mozart. So he was, let me take the best of French and Italian opera. Instead of being who's better, who's better, let's take the best of both. That was a very cosmopolitan approach. And then later on in history, you'll have it where the French are like, we want to have French opera and the talents. We want to have our, our own national identity and style. So these two sensibilities were at play at the same time in the United States during the Gilded Age. And there was a little bit of a battle. Before the Civil War, you have composers like Louis Moreau Gottschalk, who somewhat known today, but he was amazing. He was born in Louisiana. He introduced Creole rhythms, Caribbean, African elements into concert music. He went over, he tried to get into conservatories in Europe and they wouldn't have him because they thought America was only good for railroads and nothing else. But he went on to perform for some of the greatest musicians of Europe and was heralded as a genius. So his music, he and William Henry Fry, who's another name that's forgotten, and I don't think deserves to be. William Henry Fry, these were all, they are active in the 1850s, pre-Civil War. They were very much for developing an American sense of composition, but they lost that pendulum argument to the Boston-based composers. And this is not to say I don't love my Boston-based composers. That's John Knowles Payne. That's the Boston Six, though that includes people like Arthur Foote, Edward McDowell, George Chadwick, Horatio Parker, and Amy Beach. They're all fantastic, but they wanted that cosmopolitan, more European sensibility. And it was at a time where most of Europe was becoming more in the national side of that pendulum. So Gilded Age America started off on the wrong foot or out of sync, I should say, with the rest of Europe. So that's, I think, why sometimes there's this sensibility that it was derivative, but there's a lot more to that story. Now, before you ask me about one of those names and that I listed there for those New England com composers, Amy Beach. What, a woman composer writing symphonies? Now, Absolutely. About time, right? <laughs> well, I would agree with you. And it was interesting because the role of women in music was very big, but it was 
it was your opera stars, your opera singers. And in the home, part of being educated as a young woman was to also play the piano, probably sing as well. So the role of women in music during the Gilded Age is sometimes overlooked because it didn't have quite that public spotlight. But Amy Beach certainly starts pointing the way towards that changing or the possibilities of that changing. She was, there weren't too many that followed her right off the bat, but her style of music very much took, again, this cosmopolitan idea, took some of the the French aspects. So something that when we're coming up towards Impressionism and Debussy, she has aspects of that. And as I listen to some of her music, I swear I hear the beginnings of musical theater some of the kind of uniquely American melodic twists and turns that are going to become one of America's, one of America's many great art forms after the Gilded Age. The, the, the foundation is being laid. The other thing about women's role in music that I found very interesting doing my research is that if you compare European men versus American men at this time period, or of, of the upper crust, shall we say, the upper crust in Europe were men of leisure. So they were involved in the arts. They were involved in music. The upper crust of America were all businessmen. They were busy doing business. So who dictated the artistic tastes of music and architecture? It was their wives. So the women of these of the Gilded Age really had a lot to say in terms of the artistic tastes that were being used in the musical world. And with that, Chris and I are going to take a short break, but we'll come back to continue our musical story. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Save big money on everything for your spring projects at Menards. We have all of your garden and landscaping essentials. Master Garden Premium Garden Soil contains a slow-release fertilizer that feeds gardens for up to nine months. It produces better results and is ready to use for all your gardening needs. Save big on Menards' great selection of garden and landscaping products. Compare brands in-store or online at Menards.com. Save big money at Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule, so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and I'm with Dr. Christopher Brellix, and we are looking at the world of music in the Gilded Age. So, Chris, you had talked a little bit about this, alluded to it just before we left for a break. So let's leave the classical world for a moment. Can you talk a little bit about what was happening in popular music during the Gilded Age? So popular music... And as I mentioned a little bit earlier, 
the distance between popular music and classical music was not, or the gap was not quite as big as it is today. So when you became middle class, you, you've arrived. The first thing you do would buy a piano. And then the next thing you would need to do is buy some music to play on that piano because who's going to make, make the music. So that, what that meant was a high demand for sheet music and a high demand for popular music that would be easily played by an amateur musician. One of the big changes is more and more professional musicians, professional organizations. But that's not to say that amateur music making wasn't important and was not in high demand. It was. And that demanded both arrangements of popular operas or symphonies for the piano or for voice and piano, but as well as popular songs being written. And there were many. So you have After the Ball, Girl in the Gilded Cage. You have a whole bunch of these very popular songs that are being developed. And one of the things that I found interesting is that I would take these tours of these homes in the Hudson Valley, which is where I live. And you'd get to the music room. Every house has a music room. And there'd be a piano there. I'd ask them if I could play the piano. Eventually, someone said yes. So I played the piano. And I was shocked at how good the acoustics were. Coming back to acoustics again how the acoustics were in the home. And that started a whole series of me of putting on music within these homes and researching what kind of music would have been written. And it was so interesting to see the variety of popular songs, songs about the social elite, songs written by the social elite. And to uh, I had the opportunity to, to do some music in, in Frederick Church's Olana, and there I wanted to play Gottschalk because Frederick Church and Louis Moreau Gottschalk were friends. At Lindhurst, which was Jay Gould's house, I got to perform some music that was written by one of Rockefeller's descendants. And just to see all that music and those acoustic spaces. And when you do these things and you talk to the people who work there, you say, well, whatever, what, else, what else do you have in the back room maybe? And they, they open the cabinet and you see all the music they had. And they have people back then would make these almost like binders. They would have them bound like a book of all their favorite songs. And it would be so amazing to find all the expected things, some Bach two-part inventions, a nice Mozart sonata, along with these songs by many composers whose names we've forgotten, but they're charming, they're elegant, they're, they're wonderful. So Chris, I'm really fascinated by ragtime. How did we get to that? Ragtime is really special and, and it's almost the first of many developments that significantly impacts American music, especially American popular music in the 20th century. So African American music had been around since slaves were brought to the United States. And as you start having the manumission acts in the early part of the 19th century, that music kind of continues, but it's kind of in parallel to white music. So there's black music, white music. What happens is that black culture starts to significantly impact white culture. And ragtime kind of brings those two aspects together. So you're getting people like Scott Joplin, who's taking the piano, a Western European instrument, with some of the march sensibilities that Patrick Gilmer would love, but putting in some of the rhythmic syncopation, the unexpected rhythms that might have been more associated with 
the black music tradition. And that yields a whole slew of interesting music. And so when we talked earlier about that pendulum of nationalism versus cosmopolitan, how much of the Gilded Age was cosmopolitan with John Knowles Payne and the New England School, that pendulum swings back when Antonin Dvorak is invited to New York City for the National Conservatory of Music. He's invited to come back. This is in 1892. And while here in the United States, he says and he encourages American composers to utilize the indigenous and folk music of this country. So that meant Native American Indians and black music. And composers took Dvorak because he was so well respected and they ran with that. And so that laid the groundwork. So ragtime was one of the elements that lays the groundwork along with the blues for jazz and later on for rock and roll. But all that's happening in the Gilded Age. So now music from reviews and increasingly musicals that are sort of closer to what we think of today, this was all starting to emerge too, certainly here in New York, once the subway brought audiences to what is now Times Square, which is just down the street, a real extensive and a real theater district really began to to coalesce. So can you talk a little bit about the influence of some of the operettas, for example, that were landing here from Europe? I mean, I think of the craze of Gilbert and Sullivan or some of the German and Austrian pieces. What was what was going on with them? Well, you'll remember we talked a little bit about Johann Strauss II and how Patrick Gilmore brought him over. In 1874, he wrote Die Fledermaus. And it was premiered in Vienna in 1874, and within less than eight months, it was here in, in the United States. That's how quickly it made it across the Atlantic, and it was wildly popular. It made a, a big impression. Operetta was kind of like opera light, and it was very popular. The operettas gave you the excitement, the drama, but with a little bit more levity and at a, at a bit of a faster pace. So And romance. Very much, very <laughs> much so. And so you have these operas, operettas really coming over. When you have Gilbert and Sullivan, and they're really writing between 1871 and 1896. Smack dab, we're talking Gilded Age. We think of them as English composers, and that's absolutely true. But HMS Pinafore, 1878, comes over to the United States. It's a huge hit, and copyright then isn't what it is today. So within a short time, there's 150 unauthorized, modified versions of it being bootlegged throughout the United States. Sometimes within the singular city, you'll have two different versions of HMS Pinafore competing against each other. So the import of Gilbert and Sullivan was massive. But what I didn't realize until I looked deeper is that Gilbert and Sullivan would come to New York City. And so pieces like our, the operetta, The Pirates of Penzance, was written predominantly in New York and it premiered in New York City. It went to London after New York. So that just goes to show you how influential and popular those were. The fact that they were able to get the British composers to premiere one of their most famous operettas here in New York City. So we said earlier, we've talked a lot about uh, technology, and certainly that was an enormous element of, of the Gilded Age, the development of that. But I think it's really interesting 
to note that there were a few inventions actually in the orchestra, too. And now you are a specialist in the saxophone. And in one of our early conversations, you said something I just found so intriguing when you said, well, that's a Gilded Age coming of age story. What did you mean by that? And can you talk about that? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because my, you know, as a saxophonist, my first love was jazz. And when you you say saxophone, that's what everyone assumes, and, and rightfully so. Or maybe they're thinking of Bruce Springsteen in, a, in the 1980s where there was all these sax solos in, in popular music. But nothing comes out of nowhere. The saxophone, how did it become America's most popular instrument in the 20s and 30s? It was actually a fascinating story, and it was used in the orchestra. It was used by people like Camille Saint-Saëns, Georges Bizet, who wrote Carmen. He wrote for the saxophone in some of his orchestral works. Opera composers like Jules Massenet, who we mentioned for Carnegie Hall, he used it in his opera Werther. So the saxophone was used, but it wasn't used in classical music quite as much as you would expect. And so I had to ask myself, why is that? And especially when you read things about Hector Berlioz, famous French composer, and he wrote, and I'm going to read a quote for you because I think it's very telling. Berlioz wrote about Adolf Sachs, the inventor of the saxophone, will you believe it that this young and ingenious artist has a thousand troubles in getting an opening in Paris? Persecution worthy of the Middle Ages are renewed against him, exactly resembling the machinations of the enemies of Benvenuto, the Florentine carver. Adolf Sachs was vilified by the Parisian instrument makers. The instrumentalists were, were threatened. The instrument was a technological breakthrough. It combined the power of brass instruments with the agility of woodwind instruments and the vocal qualities of a singer. So it was this, um, and it was very easy to learn. It was, it was a very well-made instrument. You have basically musicians threatening to go on strike. So I was amazed to find out that Donizetti, the amazing Italian opera composer, originally intended to have saxophone in some of his operas. And that people like Gounod and Richard Wagner were also intending, but they couldn't because the musicians were threatening to strike and walk out. Can you imagine Lohengrin with, with saxophones? I think it'd be really kind of great. I just saw it this spring at the Met, and it was beautiful, but I don't know. I'd like a few sax solos in you there, know, right? I, I think, you know, one of on my long list of to-do, I might need to write the what-if alternate reality version. Gounod was another big fan. Faust was such an important opera during this time period. It was the premiere at the Academy of Music. It was the premiere at the Metropolitan Opera. Can you imagine if he threw in a little saxophone there for Faust? I think I might need to write one for myself of that version. So, Chris, I want to ask you really my trademark Gilded Gentleman question, uh, but you get two parts to the question. So if there was a performance that occurred, either a real-life one or even one that you made up, a performance that occurred during the Gilded Age that you would like to have attended or been present for, what would it be? As a historian, I'm going to go with real so I'm going to go for my favorite classical composer, who's Antonin Dvorak. I think he's got the, the perfect blend of sophistication with accessibility. And I would have loved to have been at Carnegie Hall, 1893, to hear the premiere of his Ninth Symphony, subtitled From the New World, which he wrote while he was here in the United States. It's one of my favorite pieces. I would just have loved to be there and look at the reaction 
of the audience hearing this piece that was inspired by the United States, but through the lens of this Czech composer of the highest order and the highest caliber. And what do you think that reaction would have been? It was a hit. I would have loved to feel that excitement. I would have loved to, to like gone backstage and shaken his hand. <laughs> and as I said, you get a second part to this question. So is there a Gilded Age a performer or composer that you would like to have met? And if there was, who would it be? And most importantly, what would you want to have asked them? Well, this, this kind of ties back to the Gilded Age coming of age story of the saxophone. So in spite of all the the rough start Adolf Sax had, there was a, a French saxophonist named Edward Lefebvre who came and toured the United States throughout the 1870s and on. He joined Patrick Gilmore's band. He joined uh, John Philip Sousa's band after that. And he eventually ended up establishing the Kahn Saxophone Company. So the that coming of age is that the saxophone triumphs. And one of the composers that met Edward Lefebvre was a guy named Carol Florio. He was brought over to the United States as a kid from England, sang at Trinity Church as a soloist, stayed in New York City. And in 1879, he wrote a series of pieces for the saxophone. 1879, saxophone with orchestra, saxophone quartets, like a saxophone, uh, like a string quartet. And one of the pieces that I know he wrote that has been lost is a piece for saxophone quartet and piano. And I would ask him, do you have a secret copy somewhere? Is there somewhere I could find this piece? Because Carl, I'm still looking for this piece. I have a, it used to be in the, uh, the performing arts library here in New York City. Someone checked it out like 60, 70 years ago and they haven't returned it yet. I'm not holding my breath. Well, listen, this is the beauty of my show. This goes out internationally to thousands and thousands. So maybe somebody out there that's got it will return it and you can play it and record it. If your grandfather, <laughs> your grandmother checked out Carol Florio's piece for saxophone quartet and piano, please call, email Carl at the Gilded Gentleman. He has my number. We would be much, many thanks, many thanks. Oh, Chris, it has been such a pleasure to have you join me today. And I think we've talked about just a number of things that will be really new insights for listeners on the music of the Gilded Age. If if nothing else, I think it's clear that it was a very complex and multi-layered subject and time, right? Thank you so much. My pleasure. Always good to, to help contribute to an era and time period that I think deserves closer attention and to look at all that complexity and look at all that richness that's there. We may have to do another show, Chris. What do you think? Well, I have a, a stack of notes that I didn't even <laughs> get to, Carl, so I think we, we really should. I, I love that. Thank you so much for joining me. I can't wait to have you back. It's been such an honor. Thank you. And to my listeners, you can find Chris online at Music of the Gilded Age on Facebook, on Instagram, at at Music of the Gilded Age, and on his website, www.christopherbrelux.com, and I will spell that. That's B-R-E-L-L-O-C-H-S dot com to find out more about his work and his research and his performances of the music of the Gilded Age. And thank you for joining me for another episode of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Kieran Gannon. 
I invite listeners to join the Gilded Gentlemen as patrons on Patreon.com. The support of my patrons is crucial to continuing to create and produce the show. Please visit Patreon.com slash the Gilded Gentlemen. I couldn't do it without you. And I'll see you soon. What's life without a little glint of gold? Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.